You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to read the entire chapter, even though we're going to only be in the the past or the last couple of verses as we wrap up this chapter. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Then our text for today, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea." Past couple of weeks, we've been looking at this chapter specifically in relationship to the first coming of Jesus. The, the Christmas season is upon us, and so we certainly celebrate that outside of our Sunday morning uh, teaching time, but it is appropriate that it lined up for us to also be able to celebrate it during our time in Revelation to, to see the first coming of Jesus here in John's writings and his vision to see what the first coming of Jesus accomplishes. We saw two weeks ago that Christmas encourages Christians because it inaugurated the defeat of the great dragon guaranteeing the cosmic war that's raged since the beginning will end with Christ victorious at the end. We said that this chapter is trying to answer the question, why do Christians get persecuted, right? We've been talking about persecution and suffering for the church uh, in Revelation. This chapter answers the question of the why. Why are we persecuted? Why should we expect suffering? It's because Satan is enraged against God's people because he's lost a battle, he, he lost the war for the Messiah. He sought to eliminate the plans for the Messiah. We saw some of that in the Old Testament, some of the stories where Satan attacked God's people, hoping to uh, quench the, the possibilities of the Messiah coming, but he failed in that. We see that Revelation 12 testifies to the fact that the woman gave birth to 
the child. And we see the exaltation of Christ there at the beginning of chapter 12 where he's caught up after his earthly life to the heavens where he now rules and reigns with his father. Um, We see God protecting his people in that Satan's time on earth after being cast out is for a limited time. Um, And we see the, the church being attacked in the wilderness. And we talked about the wilderness being a place that really is God's territory, that God takes his people into the wilderness and protects them time and time again in scripture. And so even as Satan tries to attack the church, it's on God's territory. We saw last week uh, Satan's defeat at the first coming, that Christ sets us free from accusation, this idea of Satan being cast out of heaven. We saw some examples in the Old Testament where Satan appears in heaven, and he's accusing the brethren. He's accusing them of their sins. The idea being these people have no right to be in relationship with you because of their sin. They should be banished from you. They should be, they should be killed by you. They, they deserve the consequences, the wages of their sin. We saw from Romans chapter three that in God's divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins leading up to the death of Jesus because he knew that he would pour out his wrath on Christ. And so now uh, accusation has been removed from us. Satan has no grounds to accuse because we admit we have no right to stand in the presence of God. We admit that we have no right to enjoy him forever, but it's because of Christ that we can say, yes, we have a reason to be here. We talked about being in a place of security and you not having access to that security until somebody you know shows up. So if you're meeting somebody at lunch at a, at a corporate place that may have a security system, you can't get past certain places until you have clearance. Your friend comes and meets you and then gives you access, takes you with, uh, takes you with them into a deeper place of that company. You now have access. You now have the right to be there because of who you're with. It works the same way in heaven, right? We have access to God's throne room because of Christ. We saw that last week. Um, From application standpoint, we talked about remembering that our enemy is a defeated foe. Satan's time is limited. Remembering that our salvation is a settled reality. It's by his blood we have been set free from condemnation, according to Romans 8, 1 through 4. That brings us to today's sermon, uh, which is titled Winning the Post-Christmas War. We're going to see that (coughs) after the uh, birth of Christ, the life of Christ, uh, Satan now turns his attention to the church. Now that he realizes he has lost his attempts to to stop Jesus from coming, his only thing to do now is to turn his attention to the church. Uh, We see that he is cast down to the earth. His time is now limited. He's enraged. We said it's like a, a snake who has been dealt a deathly blow. You may try to Uh, cut its head off or injure it in your backyard, and then it begins to uh, be enraged and enthrall itself around. It's, it's, It's thrashing, trying to cause as much injury, as much damage as possible to that which has harmed it before it dies. And that's simply what Satan's doing today. Satan is seeking to do as much harm, as much damage as possible before he is removed forever. We see that, um, we'll see that today. All right, winning the post-Christmas war. Our summary sentence, Christmas should remind Christians that we are at war due to our allegiance to the Messiah, meaning we must fight and prepare for attacks while expecting victory based on God's provision. Christmas should remind Christians that we are at war due to our allegiance to the Messiah, meaning we must fight and prepare for attacks while expecting victory based on God's provision. For our kids, Satan wants to attack Christians because of Christmas. It says this in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Right? 
He can't, he, can't, he can't do anything to Christ now. He can't tempt Christ. He can't bring any type of <coughs> uh, persecution or death to Christ. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ has risen again. Christ has ascended to the throne, right? So, so that has passed now. Satan has no hopes of stopping the Messiah from coming through the, the line of Abraham, right? He came. God preserved the seed. God preserved the seed all the way back to the promises that he gave to Eve, that she would one day, through her seed, birth the, the promised one, the one who would defeat the serpent that had deceived Adam and Eve, right? So he loses that battle. Satan has, has lost that, and so now he turns his attention to a different battle, right? Now he turns his attention to the church. So as Christians, this Christmas season ought to remind us that we are at war, that we're under attack from Satan simply because of our allegiance to the Messiah. And that means we have to fight we have to prepare for attacks that'll come our way as Satan fights against us, but we can expect victory because of what God provides to us. All right, just a couple of things to, to uh, introduce us today. As we continue to talk, I want us to, to look back at the identity of that woman. We talked about some different ideas. I told you I don't think it's, it's really important that we nail down the identity of the woman, whether it's meant to be understood as uh, believing Israel or whether it's meant to be understood as God's people as a whole. So from both those perspectives, one, I think we can see in our text today that the woman who has given birth to Christ, it's, it's not Mary. She carries a far bigger uh, responsibility than simply being uh, Mary. Um, it, it's either what we would say is the um, believing remnant of Israel in the Old Testament, right? That, that preserved seed that, that God maintained throughout the Old Testament who uh, was responsible for birthing Jesus, that believing seed. And then the offspring of the woman at the end of this passage where it says uh, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring would then be <coughs> Christians that come after Jesus' first coming. That would be Jews and Gentiles alike, that, that Satan sought to persecute the remnant Israel, failed in that, and now he turns his attention to the offspring, uh, being Christians that now come after the first coming of Jesus. Or I think we can understand the woman to be, again, the whole people of God that Satan attacks and in, in not being able to stop the church, he now turns his attention to individual Christians, which would be represented through that term offspring. Again, it's not really that important whether she's representative of believing Israel or the church and, and Israel as a whole, um, but just to give you an idea that those are two perspectives on who she is. We do see three battles being lost in chapter 12 as we come to the end. First of all, we saw Satan lost the battle for the Messiah we saw Satan lost the battle for heaven, right? Like the, the Messiah is born and he goes back to his father. Satan is cast out of heaven. He loses the war with Michael and his angels. And now today we will see the third battle that's lost. That's the battle for the church. The dragon attempts to stop the church, attempts to stop God's people, attempts to stop believing Israel, fails in doing so. God makes provision to ensure that his people will carry on despite Satan's temptations, despite his deception, despite his persecution. All right, let's get into the text this morning with our notes. Number one, Christmas enrages Satan against God's people. Christmas enrages Satan against God's people. For our kids, Christmas makes Satan angry at Jesus and Christians. Right, as we celebrate Christmas, as, as, as we'll wake up on Christmas morning and celebrate it with our families, man, I want, I want it to, to make you think in ways that maybe you've never thought before. That morning is a celebration that enrages Satan. 
The fact that we gather as believers, we'll gather Christmas Eve and celebrate together once again. We'll gather as families on Christmas Day to celebrate the birth of the Messiah. He's the reason why we celebrate this season as believers. We will celebrate his first coming. And I want you to to, um, be encouraged by the fact that in celebrating that together as a family, it makes Satan so angry. It enrages Satan because of what it means. We are celebrating that Jesus came that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died a death for us, that he rose again, giving us victory over sin, giving us victory over death. He's now calling us to him. He's rescuing a seed that Satan has previously claimed back to Jesus. It enrages Satan, the Christmas season does. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. Number one in your notes, uh, Satan pursues believers because he was defeated by Christ. Satan pursues believers Because he was defeated by Christ. Because Satan failed in his attempts to stop Jesus, he now turns his attention to the church. If he can't destroy the Messiah, he will settle for those who follow him. We have this picture of of, uh, the woman and her offspring trying to get away from, from Satan, trying to evacuate, trying to leave. We even see God rescuing and providing the wings of the great eagle to to move her to the wilderness. And we see Satan pursuing the woman. We see Satan pursuing God's people. It's not too different from how uh, uh, Pharaoh reacted. And there's a lot of um, allusion to the book of Exodus in this chapter, especially here at the end. The idea of Pharaoh and what he was doing with the children of Israel, them fleeing into the wilderness and how God protects them in the wilderness. Specifically in Exodus 14, as Pharaoh kind of gets over the, the initial shock of losing his son and relinquishing rights over the, the slaves. It says in uh, Exodus chapter 14, uh, verse 8, it says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them and camped at the sea. Right, so, so they go after the children of Israel, much like Satan is pictured as going after the woman as she flees into the wilderness. Satan pursues believers, but again, this, this chapter is answering the question, why? why? Why does Satan care about Christians? Well, he cares about them because they're aligned with Jesus. He, he cares about them because they are aligned with the Messiah. Because he loses that battle, he turns his attention towards them. Number two, Satan attacks believers because of their allegiance to Christ. He pursues them because he was defeated by Christ. He attacks them because of their allegiance to Christ. Man, and I think some of the main ways that he does that, the way that he attacks Christians, the way that he um, goes after Christians, it's through through temptation, right? It's through false teaching. And not necessarily the type of false teaching where we sit down under a guided teacher and he communicates wrong things to us, but just through philosophy and vain deceit that circulates through our culture. I mean, that's done through books and magazines and movies and websites and social media. 
Lies that we believe about ourselves, lies that we believe about others, lies that we believe about God's creation, how things work. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge way that Satan attacks uh, Christians. He wants us to believe things that are contrary to Scripture, and he's going to package it in such a way that it, that it actually makes sense to us to believe it over what Scripture has to say. I mean, he's going to attack us through temptation to sin, through false teaching, and then potentially more so for us uh, in the, into the future, maybe through persecution, right? Like actually being persecuted for being a believer through physical harm, through physical harm. All right, so Satan attacks us in various ways. He goes after Christians because of their allegiance to Christ. And he targets true believers, right? Who does he go after? He goes after the woman who's responsible for birthing the male child. So, so there's no question here that the woman is aligned to Christ, has a relationship with Christ, right? She's pictured as the mother of Christ, right? The one who's responsible for, for giving birth to uh, the, the human form of Christ, the, the, the God incarnate. Right? But then if you come down to the end of the chapter, when he turns his attention from the woman to the offspring, how are those offspring described? Those who keep the commandments of God, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. He targets true believers. I kind of summarized that. These are commandment keepers, and these are gospel spreaders. Like that's, what, that's what it means to be one who, who obeys the commands of God and holds to the testimony of Jesus. You're commandment keeper. You're a gospel spreader. It's the, it's the words that are used throughout Revelation to describe genuine, true Christians. Those who have really responded to the gospel, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Why were they slain? Why were they persecuted? Why were they killed? For the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Right? They were killed because they were following the word of God. They were obeying the commands of God and because they were holding to the witness of Jesus. They were sharing Jesus with others. That's why they were persecuted. That's why they were killed. They were commandment keepers. They were gospel spreaders. You go to uh, Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Who are the saints? Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Right, these, are, these are descriptor words for, for what it means to be a true believer. Man, it's somebody who, who, is, who is in love with God's word and wants to obey God's word, not to earn salvation, but because they've been saved, their eyes have been opened, and, and they realize, man, this is the best way to live life. I taught our kids in chapel uh, back at the beginning of the year uh, just an understanding of, of the goodness of God in relationship to his commands, that everything that God asks of us, everything that God withholds from us is for our good. Right, it goes back to that deception that Satan had Adam and Eve buy into is that God was withholding good from them. God doesn't want you to do this because he, he's, he's not good. Right? And so when we get saved, our eyes are open and we realize, and why, would I, why would I not want to obey everything in God's word? It's all good for me. It's all good for me. I think I shared with you, I challenged our students. I said, email me and complain about any of the rules that I've given you as a middle school principal and I'll tell you why it's good for you. And if it's not good for you, I'll change it. Right, and so my inbox got flooded with kids just complaining. I hate this rule, I hate this rule, I hate this rule. I went to every single one of them individually and I said, here's why it's good for you. Here's why I have it in place. Here's why I'm not gonna change it because it's good for you. And I told them, I said, I want you to see the rules that I have at Trinity as a, as a small example of how God's rules are good for you. So if you can believe that my rules are good for you, you can start to believe that all rules are good for you, Okay. 
Um, so, so gospel spreaders, commandment keepers, that's how we're described as being true Christians. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Why? For the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on the foreheads or their hands. Who are the believers? It's people that keep God's commandments. It's people who tell people about Jesus, who live their lives in such a way to where they want to point people to Jesus. And I I want to emphasize that this morning because it it necessitates that we all step back and say, is that true of me? Like, do I fall into the group of people that would be considered commandment keepers and gospel spreaders? Because if you don't fall into that group, man, that should cause great concern because you're not grouped uh, as a true believer in the book of Revelation if you're not those things. Again, I don't want to confuse anybody into thinking that, man, we have to obey and keep commandments to be a Christian, to be saved. No, we obey and keep commandments because we are Christians, because we are saved, because our eyes again are open and when we realize, why would I not do these things? They're not burdensome, the Bible says, right? And if they're still burdensome to you, then again, it it causes you to, to, it should cause you to question, am I really a believer? Because maybe my eyes haven't been open to this. Am I just obeying commands because I'm trying to earn God's favor? Or am I obeying commands because, man, it's the best thing possible for me. Satan attacks believers, true believers, commandment keepers, gospel spreaders through temptation, false teaching, persecution. Their allegiance to Christ. Believers are targeted for their relationship to Christ, right? Their allegiance to Christ, their relationship to Christ, the fact that they are aligned with Christ, considered uh, part of his offspring is what this text tells us. Believers are targeted for their obedience to Christ, right? The idea that they keep God's commands, here's where I wanted to have a little discussion between uh, just a a little mini discussion on sanctification and measuring sanctification in your life, specifically against willful premeditated sins and like non-willful spontaneous type sins, right? Like we're never gonna be perfect until Jesus comes back. We're never gonna stop sinning until Jesus comes back. But as we're sanctified, we should certainly see both of these areas of sin decreasing in our life but it necessitates that we attack and fight against them in two different ways, I think. When we talk about premeditated willful sins, these are sins that you have to think through to act upon. You have to plan to do these things. And I'm gonna stop short of saying that we could get to a point where that is eliminated from our life, but man, I really believe with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, those should get to the point as we continue to be sanctified where they are minimal in our life, where we are actually planning to do sinful things. If you're still in the process where you are planning regularly to do sinful things, then we have a real problem. I mean, you are baby, baby Christian if you are still all the time constantly planning to do sinful things, right? We're all gonna stay in a state where, uh, man, things happen to us and we react in a sinful way just kind of spontaneously. Like I lose my temper, like I get angry at my kids or, or I lash out at somebody at work or I get frustrated or I get jealous. Like nobody wakes up in the morning and says, man, I can't wait to get up today and be jealous, right? Like I can't wait to get up today and covet what my neighbor has, right? These are things that kind of happen throughout the day and they reveal to us that, man, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. Like, I'm not there yet. Like, there's still much work to be done on me as Jesus comes back. 
But if there are things that you wake up and you anticipate doing in the day that are sinful, man, like that, that it's, it's, it, it would be hard to call you a commandment keeper if that's a, if that's a thing that happens regularly, right? Like the, the idea of planning to sin, because the goal of sanctification, I think, is to reduce the, the time frame between sinning and conviction and confession, right? Like you want to reduce that down to where, man, you may always lose your temper until Jesus comes back, but what you do in the midst of that greatly changes over time, right? To where you could be angry with your kids and it goes several days before you sit down and realize, man, I shouldn't have done that, right? Like you want to get to the point where you lash out in anger and immediately you step back and you say, whoa, whoa, that is not okay. Like I need to apologize. I need to, I need to confess. Like I'm convicted over that, right? Like I had a chance this week, um, where I was, I was in the position to commit like a premeditated type sin. Um, last Saturday I was hunting, um, and, and I'm still learning how to hunt specifically to identify deer that should be shot and shouldn't be shot, right? And so one of the, one of the hardest things for me still is to identify a, a doe and a button buck. A button buck is, is a buck that hasn't really sprouted his antlers yet, like they're barely poking through, and they're like little white spots on the top of their head. Let me tell you, it's really hard to see little white spots on a deer's head when you're, when you're hunting in like a snowdrift. Like, I mean, it was snowing hard, and this deer walks out. And I'd already texted a buddy of mine that was hunting at the same time. I said, I'm paranoid to shoot a doe today because I'm afraid it'll be a button buck. And he's like, no, 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 if it's a good-looking deer, shoot it. All right, so I shoot this deer. I'm convinced it's a doe because I've passed on a couple of other deer that morning that I wasn't sure about. This one I'm sure about. Like, this is a female deer shoot it. I know it's going down. I find blood. I text everybody in my hunting club. Hey, I shot a doe. I'm about to pull it out. Like I found the body. It's dead. All right. So I go back to get my truck. I walk down there. I start to drag this thing out. I look at the head. I'm like, nah, it's a button buck, right? Like it's not a doe, which isn't a huge deal because it's legal to shoot it. But on, on, on our property, like it's not like according to the rules, right? Like you, you don't shoot small bucks. Um, and it could cause potentially a fine or you could potentially get kicked off the property. So immediately I'm like, man, it's taken, it's taken me years to find a property in Sonoy that I can hunt. And here I am, my first deer on the property is, a, is an illegal deer for our rules. And so I, I, immediately I went through a thought process. Yeah, should I, really, should I really share that with everybody? Like, do I need to really confess this? Like, it's not a big deal, right? Like, I've already told everybody it's a doe. Everybody's fine with this. I'm going to drag it out. I'm going to take it down to the processor, right? And I'll even make changes. I won't shoot another deer the rest of the year. Like, as punishment to myself, I just, I won't do that. And so, like, this thought process is kind of flooding through my mind. How do I handle this? How do I react to this? And, and I'm dragging the deer out, and I'm driving out, and I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Right? And immediately, I was like, this, this is stupid. Like, like, truth matters here. Truth matters here. So I immediately texted the two guys that are over the property. I said, I got to tell you something. I said, this isn't a doe. I said, I made a mistake. Like, I, I told you it was because I really thought it was. Under further investigation, it's not. Man, there was such a huge relief that came over me that I didn't yield to something that small, right? And I believe the Holy Spirit was convicting me. The Holy Spirit was saying, this is not okay. You go down this road, man, you start opening up the door for other, uh, other situations that are not truthful that you yield yourself to and, and justify it. And I was thankful for that conviction, right? I was thankful for that conviction. Premeditated sins, non-premeditated sins, man, both those should be decreasing in our life because we're called to be commandment keepers right? Commandment keepers, gospel spreaders. We should be targeted by Satan because of those things. Believers are also targeted for their mission to Christ, that idea of spreading the gospel. Satan wants to, wants to squelch us, wants to quench us, wants to destroy us 
from being somebody who obeys God's commands, that enrages him, and then somebody who tells other people to obey God's commands, I mean, that really enrages him, right? Um, so Christmas, it enrages Satan because of our allegiance to um, Christ. It's in, uh, he enra- he's enraged against God's people, right? Number two, Christmas reminds Christians of God's gifts. Christmas reminds Christians of God's gifts. For our kids, Christmas reminds us that God has given us all we need. Here's what I love about this passage, is that you have, again, this, this great serpent, this great dragon. And I love that John pictures him in like the most scary terms that we can really, again, imagine, right? Like he's, he's, a, he's a multi-headed dragon with all this power. I mean, you watch some of the movies and, and you read some of the mythology. I mean, this is like the, this is like the monster, that, that you don't want to ever face, and that's who's pictured as pursuing us into the wilderness. Like, he's coming after us, and, and he's about to spew uh, flooding-type waters out of his mouth. And what we get from this picture is, and you can resist this guy. You can, you can defeat this guy. One, because he's really already defeated. He's a dying dragon. But you don't have to be subjected to his, his attacks. You don't have to give in to these things. You don't have to be conquered by these things. I love the picture that, that John gives us of, of this great dragon with all this great power and how it really doesn't accomplish much or it doesn't have to accomplish much in our life. First of all, we see, number one, that God provides divine protection from Satan's attacks. <coughs> God provides divine protection from Satan's attacks says that he's cast down, thrown to the earth. He pursues the woman who had been given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. I mean, you kind of get this picture, for those of you that watch Lord of the Rings, like the eagles show up right here. Right, like these are the eagles that come in and rescue when all hope is lost and the enemy is, is moving in and there's nowhere else to go because you're on the edge of a cliff and, and here come the orcs, here come the eagles, right? The eagles come in and, and rescue the good guys. They come in and swoop out of nowhere. It's not really clear, like, like how did they know? How did they know exactly where to come? Man, they come in at the right time, at the right place, and they rescue. You read this and you're like, man, is that really gonna happen in the future? Like, are we going to be under such duress from the government, from the Antichrist, that, like, we're either going to sprout wings like eagles or eagles are going to come in and rescue us at various times? This is another area where this is language that's used outside of Revelation to simply describe God's protection. Um, Let's go to Exodus 19, verse 4. Again, I told you a lot of allusions to the book of Exodus. This is another good example. Um, As they're... At Mount Sinai, they've already evacuated from Egypt. They've come through a portion of the wilderness. They're at Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. Um, It says, There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Right? We don't read that and pause and say, whoa, like that wasn't included earlier. So what happened was after they left Egypt, they were carried by eagles all the way to Mount Sinai. Like we don't read it that way, right? Like we read that and say, okay, God carried them through the, the, prom- uh, through the, uh, through the Red Sea, and then God sustained them, protected them from danger. He, he provides for them all the way to Mount Sinai. 
And so we read that and we say, okay, God took care of them. And he describes it as though he, he carried them on eagles' wings and brought them all the way to the mountain. But we don't really try to say that he, he allowed eagles to carry them there, right? Same here in Revelation. I don't think we're, we're longing and waiting for a day when we get rescued by eagles. We are in a day where God continues to rescue us on a daily basis, though, in the same way that he's always done to his people. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is another example of this language. Verse 9 of Deuteronomy 32, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. Made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled uh, him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the uh, flinty rock. Curds from the herds and milk from the flock with the fat of lambs, rams of bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. This is language that God uses to talk about how he provides and cares for his people. And he uses the, the language of a bird, like an eagle. It says that the, the, the wings are spread, and I had to look it up because I wasn't sure what a pinion was. Pinion is like the edge, like the tip of the wings, right? And so it's like this picture of like God like using the edge of his wings to even like bring his people in and take care of them, provide for them, and protect them. That's what's described here in Revelation, is that as Satan pursues God's people, man, God acts like an eagle and protects and provides and, and creates distance even in what Satan is capable of doing. Uh, Psalm 17, verse 8 is another one. Psalm 17, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Uh, Psalm 91, verse 1. And, you know, I've shared with this with you before, the, the, the language and revelation being used in other portions of Scripture. That's probably been one thing that's really stood out to me in our studies of Revelation. Revelation was always such a confusing book to me, but I think clarity at least has come for me in seeing that we're not dealing with language that's unique only to Revelation. This is how God's always dealt with his people. It's how God has always talked to his people. Psalm 91, verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Again, God's provision, his protection described like a giant eagle with wings surrounding us. Um, Psalm 124, the last one I'll read. Um, but you can also reference Isaiah 40, verse 27 through 31, which is a really familiar passage about mounting up with wings as eagles. But Psalm 124, I think, is a, a really cool passage. It says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Right, we're, about to, we're about to talk about the picture where the earth opens up and swallows up this flood of water that's meant to cause harm to the woman. 
The psalmist says, if it had not been for the Lord, our enemies would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. So even here in the Old Testament, the idea of flooding waters being described as an enemy's attack against God's people. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. I'm sure that John knew the Old Testament far better than me, and it wouldn't surprise me if he thought about Psalm 124 as he was writing Revelation 12, because, I mean, it's, it's a lot of the same stuff right here, right? The idea of the enemy coming with, with flooding waters to, to bring, bring an end to, to God's people and God saving them, right? God saving them, God sparing them, much like a bird from a snare being able to fly away, all right? Um, God creates a distance, basically, to limit, limit Satan's influence here. Right, like we're, we're basically just out of harm's reach. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Right, so she doesn't get to fly away and then completely be removed from Satan's attacks. There's just a distance, a healthy distance that's created here to where attacks can still be hurled. They're just not defeating, uh, they're just not defeating the, the people of God. Right? There's a distance created that protects God's people. They're just out of harm's reach. Attacks can still be thrown, but they can't really cause harm. You're going to see this picture, and I won't, all I'll say is when you see the new Star Wars movie, there, there's a scene where where the good people are just out of harm's reach from the bad people. So think about this text when you see this movie, if you haven't seen it already. It's like the bad people are just, just far enough away to where they can't get close enough to hurt the good people, right? And, and as I was studying this, I was like, man, that, that's, that's, that's one good thing about this, this new movie, is that it, it helped me to kind of better see this, this healthy distance here. Satan still hurling attacks, but they're minimal in their effect because God has rescued his people, he's created a healthy distance to where Satan can't do exactly what he wants to do. He can only pursue so far, then he's kind of stuck, left hurling attacks, okay? Um, Number two, not only does he provide uh, protection, he also provides divine deliverance from Satan's attacks. He creates that distance to limit Satan's influence, and then God creates a defense to escape Satan's influence. So from that healthy distance, the serpent pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Well, what does that mean? Again, if we're not talking in literal terms here, we're not talking about us being caught away by eagles. We're not talking about Satan coming in the form of a dragon, and he's not going to spew some great flood upon the earth, probably. Could be totally wrong about that, and it'll play out like a Lord of the Rings movie. But if it's not to be taken literally, which I don't think it is, then the best understanding from other passages of Scripture is to view this as an attack from his mouth that could, could really flood us, destroy us if we're not careful. What kind of attacks come from the mouth? Well, the, the lies and the deceit that so often characterize Satan in Scripture. His lies, his deception, his false teaching. I'll give you a couple of examples. Psalm 144. Psalm 144, 7 through 8. 
uh, stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from many waters, from the hands of foreigners. Okay, so David needs help from God. He needs to be rescued and delivered from waters, waters that come from the hand of foreigners. Verse eight, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Here, that language, like I said, is applied to false teaching, right? Lies, deception, uh, a lack of truth being communicated. Um, Revelation chapter 13, verse five through nine. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's the same as a time and times and time and a half. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Authority was given to it over every tribe, people, language, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. All right, so here the idea that the beast that comes in the very next chapter has the power through his mouth to deceive in such a way that people begin to worship anything but God. All right, so I do believe here in Revelation 12, the attacks that we're talking about from Satan come from his mouth, that it's primarily the attacks of deception, temptation, uh, that so often characterize Satan throughout Scripture. Okay? Um, Temptation. In two ways, so temptation and deception are the ones that I want us to talk about. God has made provision in each one of our lives to escape those flooding waters. As he pursues us, God evacuates us to the wilderness, protects us, creates a healthy distance from Satan. So yes, Satan roams this earth like a lion seeking whom he may devour. But there's a healthy distance. He can only get so close. He hurls his attacks like a flooding water but the earth is available to swallow those things up, to protect us, to escape us from that type of damage. How's that happen? Well, uh, when we talk about temptation, we know very clearly from 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right, like there's no excuse given in scripture for doing sinful things. There's no excuse for it. Whether we talk about premeditated or non-premeditated sins, there's no excuse for acting in a sinful way. There's always a way of escape. So let's talk about it back, going back to those two ideas. You attack them differently. You attack premeditated sins differently than non-premeditated sins. Here's what I mean by that. One is a reactive attack. The other one is a preventative attack. Okay, reactive attack. Here's how this plays out in our school when we talk about protecting our students. We are reactive in the sense that we want to make sure that our kids are safe from things like uh, active shooters, uh, from tornadoes, from uh, fire, right? So we have sprinkler systems to make sure that those things are, are, are taken care of if we ever have a fire. We have security locks that are in place so that a, an active shooter could not just enter our building right? Like we have magnetic locks on all of our doors. Um, we have a security system in place at the front office to where if somebody comes to visit our campus, they have to check in with their license and it runs an immediate background check to figure out if this is a predator or not, 
our kids in danger if this person's on our campus, right? We are reactive in the sense that, okay, we know these things can happen. Let's make sure that they don't, right? So as we fight against sin, as we're saved and we're being sanctified, there's some things that we know are a tendency for us to commit as a sin. Man, we're to get reactive and to say, okay, I'm gonna eliminate the opportunities for this sin in my life. I'm not going to let this be a possibility. So anytime I'm talking to somebody who wants counsel about finding victory over a sin, that's the first step. That's the first step, right? If you're broken and convicted about your sin, the first step is to make sure you remove all outlets for that sin to gain a foothold in your life. But that doesn't dismiss still the, the, the unthought of way for somebody to access our school, right? So not only do we have all these things that are in place every single day to protect our school, we also have lockdown drills, and we have a plan in place in case an active shooter ever gets into our building. Here's what we do if we miss something. Here's what we do if there's a breach in our security. Here's what we do if spontaneously something pops up that we weren't prepared for. Here's how we now react to that. So we talk about premeditated sins. Man, get everything out of your life that would tempt you in this way and then have a plan in place for how to react if something springs up that you were completely unprepared for, right? So we think in terms, probably very quickly, at least, at least as guys, how does this relate to our fight against lust, okay? Man, we eliminate every opportunity for lust in our life. When we just get rid of it, we put, we put security measures in place to prevent this from happening. But that, that's not gonna stop us from, from working around uh, people that could potentially become a temptation. How do we handle that? right? Now I've got to have plans in place for, okay, what happens when something slips through the cracks and now becomes a a new and unique way for me to access sin? How do I react to that now? That's a preventative thing. I'm going to plan in advance how I'm going to react to that type of situation. Why? Because scriptures told me I don't have any excuse for sinning because every possible way to get out of it has been made to me. There's always a way to get out of it. Sometimes I have to put measures in place to make sure that place is available so that I can get out of it, right? Like it's not just that God magically drops ways to get out of temptation to us. He's given us a brain to create ways as well so that when we're in a situation and we need help, we've put measures in place to make sure we can get out. We don't have to give in to the floodwaters of temptation. We can escape it. Scripture says there's always a way to escape it. Deception, deception, lies can be thwarted by examination, First John, what do we do with the false teachings that circulate? How do we combat that? Man, John tells us in First John chapter four, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, right? The Holy Spirit who indwells us is greater than the great dragon who is hurling uh, flooding waters at us from a distance. We can overcome his deception. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. The world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Man, he's saying examine everything that you hear, every philosophy through God's word. Be a commandment keeper, be a gospel spreader. Don't give in to, don't don't allow Satan to attack you 
with his deception. What are some of the major lies today that he's seeking to do that with? What are some examples that you guys shared in your groups this morning? Some of the major lies that are maybe circulating in our culture today that could, affect, that could potentially affect the church moving forward. <coughs> Any thoughts on that? Gender roles and sexuality being allowed in the church. All right, gender roles and sexuality within the church. What else? <coughs> False doctrines. False doctrines. Kind of just along the same lines, but the love conquers all and tag with God's plan. Yep, yep. Love conquers all. Doesn't matter about God's plan. I mean, the four I came up with real quick that I think are an immediate uh, danger to this, the kids at Trinity Christian School. Um, so you're not exempt by, by being homeschooled. You're not exempt by being in a Christian school. Um, it's not just public school kids that are in danger. All right? Four immediate lies that are circulating, I think, that are, that are something that we as parents absolutely have to be aware of but then also just as individual christians we need to be aware of for our own selves as well one absolutely that gender does not matter that gender is not important i mean that is being circulated so much right now so much right now um and 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 the hook to it uh, at least for me um for example there there's a they just recently built um uh, a wendy's right next to our school and so i was over there eating um, and there's a guy there that I've seen a couple of times in going over there. Um, God, I think God created him as a guy. He is absolutely one of the most genuinely nice fast food employees that, that I've ever been around, right? Like, like he's, he's Chick-fil-A material at a Wendy's restaurant, right? Uh, like there's a unique, typically a unique employee at Chick-fil-A. Like you just expect like them to be nice to you and to do and go above and beyond. Like this is this guy at Wendy's. Like he's just a genuinely nice guy. Um, he's, he's extremely confused about gender and sexuality, right? But, but what, what the culture would want me to believe is, I mean, this guy's a lot nicer than all the other guys that work at this establishment that have got gender figured out, right? So why would I think this guy has a problem or needs to be addressed when, when his sin is no different than everybody else's sin, right? And so you start to minimize the importance of gender, but, man, you go back to Genesis, man, we were real clear in our teachings in Genesis that God created gender for a very specific reason, specific roles, specific, specific giftings, right? Specific picture purposes for communicating the relationship of Christ in the church, right? But, but our kids, man, I don't know what it looks like in the next 10, 15 years for our kids to be subjected to that through TV, through movies, the attack on gender and the attack on gender roles, Man, even in like some of the movies we look at, like uh, uh, an attack on the male gender and a, and a highlighting of the female gender, almost as though the male gender is just stupid and idiotic and has no ability to make a plan. It's probably my biggest complaint about uh, the new Star Wars movie, just to be frank with you, is that there is an attack on gender roles. So if you haven't seen it, go in with a mindset that I'm not going to allow this to happen. I'm not going to be confused about gender because there's an attack on, on the male gender in that movie. Right? But the lie that's being circulated right now is gender doesn't matter. The other lie that's circulating right now is that marriage doesn't matter. Man, our kids at Trinity, more and more and more, it's becoming common for there to be divorced families at Trinity. That, that, that marriage is not important, but that also the things that are reserved for marriage don't have to be reserved for marriage anymore. 
and a wake-up call for our parents. Man, you have got to be aware of the type of attacks that our kids are vulnerable to in ways that we never were at their age. I'm just telling you, it used to be that from a, from a male gender side of things, you had to fight to not see inappropriate things about females that you would never meet, right? It is very common at Trinity Christian School for pictures to be circulated amongst our students as early as sixth and seventh grade. So now you're walking the halls with students that you, you know far more about than you should. I would not be surprised at all if, if, if youth in our church have already been exposed to that, have already been tempted to, to explore that, have been exposed to it, or have given in to that. So guys and girls that are part of our youth group, man, if that, if that is something that you're dealing with, man, I encourage you to reach out to the, to, the, to the people that have invested in you and have committed to you and to have those conversations. Because this is becoming the norm. It is commonplace. And again, you're not protected by choosing public school, private school, or homeschool from this stuff, right? If your kid is friends with another kid, then they're in danger, right? And we've been convinced as a society that our kids have to have phones, that they have to, right? There's, there's no more pay phones anymore. How's my kid going to get in contact with me if they don't have a phone? And I'm not, I'm not debating as to when to give your kid a phone or when not to right now. I'm just saying that there are other lies that are out there that convince us that we have to do certain things that then potentially expose our kids to things that are dangerous, right? Gender doesn't matter. Marriage doesn't matter. The things that are reserved for marriage don't have to be reserved for marriage anymore. Man, our kids are under attack. Our kids are under attack, and Satan is working with his deception to make sure that happens. Two more. Church is not important. Church is not important with a lot of our Christian, family, Christian families at Trinity. Right? You ask people where they go to church, and what, you mean, what they mean when they respond is, when I go to church, this is where I would go. But we don't go to church that often. Like This is the church that we put down when we have to put where we go to church. But we're not really involved there. We don't go very much at all. Like Within our, within our uh, student body, even at Trinity, church is not important from a family perspective, from what the parents are conveying to them. Now, our Bible department's tirelessly laboring to communicate, man, be a part of a local church. We know you're a middle school kid. We know you can't drive. But man, when you can, get to a local church if your parents aren't going to take you there. Because the message that's being communicated is church isn't important. That the word is not important. Satan's lies are, are out there. And if we're not careful, we could give in to those things. But by God's grace, we can examine those, those lies through God's word and see the error of the ways. God creates a defense. He gives us a way of escape from temptation. He gives us ways to examine and make sure that we don't give in to lies. He swallows up the attacks of the enemy. In Exodus 15, 1 through 12, uh, God destroying Pharaoh and the Egyptians is described as him swallowing up the enemy. What do we have in Revelation 12? The idea that Satan throws these attacks and the earth swallows up the attack. Well, it's the same language used in Exodus 15. God swallowed up the Egyptians. Numbers 16, right? That's the passage where, where Korah's rebellion against Moses' leadership. How does, how does God respond? Man, the earth opens up and swallows up the threat to his people, right? God does this. God swallows up the attacks of the enemy. We see that language throughout Scripture. 
Let me give you three points of application from Revelation 12. Number one, in this post-Christmas war, because we are at war, since that first Christmas, Satan has been cast out of heaven. He is enraged against God's people. He is now hurling deception. He's now hurling temptation. And in various places, hurling persecution to try to destroy the church. We fight against that. We're at war. We fight against that. We operate from a position of victory. Satan failed in defeating Jesus. He will also fail in defeating the church. Right? We see the church as a corporate whole. He cannot defeat the woman. He has to turn his attention to the individual offspring. Satan's power is very real. Romans 16, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 4, all those passages talk about the dangers of, of being uh, conquered by Satan, wandering away from the faith, giving in to Satan. But we can operate from a position of victory. Satan failed in defeating Jesus. He will also fail in defeating the church. Number two, expect divine help. Expect divine help. Christmas season, be reminded that God gives us everything that we need. Deuteronomy chapter 32. What we're most in danger of is forgetting that. We read Deuteronomy 32 earlier. Talked about God's provision, his salvation, his rescuing of his people. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, it flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, burying them on its pinions, right? Like he protects them. We stopped at verse 15. Verse 15 says, but Jerusalem grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him, scoffed at the rock of his salvation. <clears throat> they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Man, Israel just, they got, they got forgetful. They forgot about God's provision. God promised all this protection, all this care, and all this nourishment, and, and Israel enjoyed it, and they started to forget the, forget the source of it. Started to turn to other things, started giving in to other things. We can expect divine help. So you battle against temptation, you have divine help on your side. You don't have to give in. You battle against all the falsehood and the lie. As parents, you are battling against this for your kids' hearts and your kids' souls. Man, you have divine help on your side, right? We don't have to give in to those things. Number three, fight the war with others. Fight the war with others. The local church is the best place to avoid the deceptive waters of Satan. The local church is the best place. And if your kids ever question you and say, now why do we have to go to church? Why do we have to go to church? And if they ever say, why can't we just stay home and watch it on the internet? Because that's a big push now. That's a big push now. Ben and I were even talking about a pastor that, that was forced to resign, fired from his church for sinful things, and now he has started what he calls online church. This is where I will preach every Sunday, and according to your schedules, you can listen whenever you want to to get the message, and this will be our church, online church. Why is that, why is that not sufficient? Because of Ephesians 4, verse 11, 
He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and and deceitful schemes. That's the same language again, the idea of rushing waters, tossing us to and fro through deception. Paul says, man, be a part of the local church, be under the leadership of the local church, allow the leadership to grow you up in your face so that you're not uh, susceptible to to false teaching. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Man, the best place to be protected from Satan's attacks, it's within the local church. God's designed it that way. His divine help comes through the local church oftentimes as we fight against Satan, as we fight against his temptation, we fight against his deception. Close with our family worship questions. And these are a little bit heavier than normal, so I also left it to where you can discuss as is appropriate with your kids and the age that they're at. Why is gender so important and what lies are being circulated today about gender? Find out what they've already been exposed to. What what are some of the lies that they've been told about gender? Talk about why it's important. If you need guidance on that, I'd be happy to help. Number two, why is marriage so important and what lies are being circulated today about marriage? Man, I'm fearful again of the the culture that, that my kids will grow up to see in regards to gender and marriage and what that looks like. What, what has been the norm for so long, it's being attacked, right? It's being attacked. And to see the, the aftermath of that attack and what that looks like down the road, we can't tell. Um, but we certainly have a responsibility to attack it within our own walls, with our own families, to make sure that our kids understand what God's word, if they're gonna be commandment keepers and gospel spreaders, they gotta know it. They gotta know what God's word says about gender, what God's word says about marriage so they can hold to that testimony, so they can hold to that truth. Let me pray, and then we'll sing as we close things out today. God, I thank you that you've given us assurance time and time again in Scripture that Satan is defeated. We do not have to fear him. But God, we know from Scripture that we certainly have to respect the fact that we are under attack by him, and we have to take responsibility to put ourselves in position to succeed against those attacks. We are thankful that you give us all the divine help that we need to be successful as we pursue sanctification, as we long for and desire sin in our life to be reduced. God, we long and desire to see that when we do sin, the amount of time it takes for us to be convicted and to confess that is reduced. God, we thank you for the divine help that ensures those things happen, that we can fight against Satan and his temptation and his deception, and we can find victory in that fight. We're thankful that you have created a healthy distance between us and him to where he cannot do any more harm than you allow. He can have no more influence and no more effect than what you allow. But God, we also know that we're close enough to be subjected to those attacks if we're not careful, if we don't take both reactive and preventative measures to ensure our, our spiritual success. God, we're thankful that you've allowed local churches to be in existence where we can come underneath leadership. We can join with others in fellowship and we can uh, fight this war together. God, I pray that you would give victory to all of our members 
God, that we would find victory over temptation. We would find victory over the false lies that are circulating, that we would be described as commandment keepers and gospel spreaders. God, I pray for our children, that we would be faithful as parents and as church members to pour into their lives to ensure that while they are uh, under attack from Satan, that they are not also going to have to give into that either, that we are here to help protect them, to teach them, to communicate them the truths that are contained in your word. God, we're thankful for this Christmas season, not just because we get to spend time with family and friends, not because we get to exchange gifts and enjoy the season together. God, we're thankful for this Christmas season that it, it makes Satan angry. And for all the right reasons, that you've come and you have saved us, you have, you have stopped his plans. And God, we look forward to the day that Jesus comes back for us. Help us to remain faithful until that day. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.